I don't think there is anything that preoccupies our attention or stirs up our emotion quite like the subject of our mortality. Eventually, all of us have come to this realization that none of us are getting off this earth alive. It varies, of course, as to when we first had that realization. Some of us came to that conclusion when we were just children. Others of us had that realization in middle age. Many of us are wrestling with that right now in the twilight years of our lives. We've all had that moment of realization, haven't we? It's a a feeling of awe mixed with fear and dread, with altogether wonderment about what exactly will happen when we die. Years ago, in a prior church, I had a conversation with an elderly matriarch in the congregation. This was a woman who is now into her 90s, suffering over the past 25 years with gradual macular degeneration and poor eyesight. Many years ago, when she was a younger woman, she lost her husband in military service back when she was in her early 30s. She called me over for a pastoral visit. I went over and spent a good time with her. We talked all about the kids and the grandkids and the great-grandkids. We talked about her love for the church and about her deep faith and trust in God. And then at one point, the conversation turned surprisingly somber when after a quiet, pensive moment, she said out of the blue this question, Pastor, when I die, what will my husband John look like? She lost him when she was in her early 30s, can still picture his young, scrapping military body. She wanted to know if that was the John who was going to be in heaven. And then she said, Pastor, will I look like this when I go to heaven? Now into my 80s? Will will there be a 50-year gap in our age appearance when we go to heaven? Will he even recognize me? And, and with my poor eyesight, will I even recognize him? How will we know who our loved ones are? What will our bodies look like? How is that going to work, Pastor? I don't remember what I said to her that day. There's every good chance that what I said to her then is not something I would agree with now. I'm pretty sure that what I did say to her was, Dear sister, ultimately it's a mystery. We can have our faith. We can have our assurance from faith. We can believe. But ultimately, it's a mystery. That's the one thing we can say for sure. Doesn't quite answer all the questions, though, does it? In fact, if anything, it conjures up more questions. What kind of bodies will we have? How will we recognize each other? What age will I have in heaven? The age when I died? Or will there be a more youthful-looking me? Will we see all of our loved ones there? How exactly is it going to work? 
My goodness. The questions are almost limitless, aren't they? Matched only by our sense of urgency in finding answers to them. And so, as good Christians do, we turn to the Bible for answers, right? It's a good place to start when we're looking for answers to questions of the Christian faith. And it's there that we discover a very intriguing idea, that the Bible is not of one voice when it comes to questions of human mortality. There is not one single answer, not one definitive approach to the idea of what happens to us after we die. Take the Old Testament, for example. In the Hebrew Bible, there are surprisingly few references to life after death. There's a little bit in Job. There's a sprinkling in the Psalms. The closest that we get is this concept called Sheol, which is found primarily in the Psalms and is there that the psalmist describes this holding place where both the righteous and the unrighteous go. And it's a state of darkness and perpetual separation from God. It's about as much as the Old Testament cares to say about the subject. So we flip some pages ahead and go into the New Testament. And there we discover, surprisingly, that the New Testament has lots of different ideas as well. We turn first to the book of Thessalonians. It's there where Paul is telling the Thessalonian Christians that when they die, when we die, we go into the ground. Both the righteous and the unrighteous go into the earth. And there is where we stay until the final days. In that glorious moment, as Paul describes it, when Jesus descends from heaven into the clouds and a trumpet shall sound and all of the dead who are in Christ will rise first and they will meet him there in the air. It's one of the classic images that has been sustained by the church over the years. It's found in Thessalonians, that when we die, we go into the earth and we wait. But then... You flip some pages back to the Gospels. And there you hear an interesting story about Jesus, who is spending his final moments hanging on the cross. And he tells one of the criminals who's hanging on the cross next to him these words. After having a poignant conversation with this man, he says to this criminal, Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. No holding place. No waiting period. You won't go into the earth and just wait there. Today, with the immediacy, the immediacy of the now, there will be no hesitation. You will gain access to heaven with me at this very moment. So what do we do with all of these different voices in the Bible? One of the tools we have is we turn to the traditions of the church. Maybe, as Christians before us have wrestled over these voices, they can give us some clarity as to what we can believe about life after death. And one of the great creedal formulations that we've been given by the early church is the Apostles' Creed. It's the very same creed that we recited moments ago at the start of our service. 
It is the greatest concentration of creedal beliefs that we have. And this is what the Apostles' Creed contributes to our discussion this morning. This is what the early church believed, that when we die, there will be a resurrection of our bodies. It's right there in the final two statements of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Notice what it says. It does not say, I believe in the resurrection of the spirit, right? Nor does it say, I believe in the resurrection of the soul. That's one of our popular conclusions today is that when we die, there's an immediate differentiation between our body and our soul. And it's our soul that rises up to heaven. Or it's our spirit that leaves us behind and goes off into heaven. Many of us have that assumption that when we die, our spirit or our soul becomes separated, and that is what ascends into heaven. But that is not what the creed says. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, how does that work? To get into the answer to that question, I would remind us of what was happening back in the early centuries when the creed was developed. Back in the days of the early church, there was a doctrine that was being taught by false teachers that had gained such popularity, it was starting to spread like a virus all throughout the early Christian church. And that false teaching was called Gnosticism. I've preached on Gnosticism before, but here it is again in a nutshell. Gnostics believed that the human life was composed of two essential differentiated things. One is our soul, our spirit. That is the part that God gives to us at the moment that we are created. When we say that we are created in God's image, Gnostics believed that that is primarily and absolutely the soul of the human life. And then, Gnostics said, there's everything else. All of the rest of the material world, all of the rest of the natural order, all the things that we can see and sense and experience and touch, including the flesh and bone of our bodies, all of the rest of that, Gnostics said, was not God. In fact, they would say that bodies were sinful, corrupt, decaying, all a result of the fall. Which is why salvation, according to Gnostics, was primarily defined as the soul being set free from the human body. Like a prisoner on a jailbreak. To be saved, according to Gnostics, meant that our soul needed to escape these sinful, corrupt bodies. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. But you can see what one of the primary problems with Gnosticism was. If our primary purpose here on earth is to set our soul free from our bodies, then what in the world is our motivation to take care of these bodies to begin with? Why would I be a good steward of this body? Why would any of us be a good steward of this earth if the primary task for us is to leave it all behind? I'd be hard-pressed to imagine that there was such a thing as a Gnostic physician back in the early centuries. 
probably wouldn't do much business because there'd be no motivation whatsoever for us to take care of our bodies. Eventually, the early church decided that Gnosticism was a heresy. Why? Because it came to the conclusion that our bodies are pretty good. In fact, they are gifts from God. Paul at one point says they are the temples of the Holy Spirit. In another place, in the book of Genesis, when God creates human beings, what does God say when God sees the first human bodies? God says it's good. Which means that when God created your body, God did not say, whoops. And when Jesus calls us to love God, Jesus calls you to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of this. All of our strength. All of our body. Oh, the early Christians then believed that the, the main goal for Christians was not to leave our bodies behind, but to see our bodies reclaimed, transformed, and even resurrected because bodies are good. And so in the 5th century, when the church got together to formulize their faith into a creedal statement that would capture all that believed and have it passed down throughout the generations, it should be no surprise to us that the final two lines of the Apostles' Creed are the clearest evidence of anti-Gnosticism in the entire creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. That's why it's in our creed. Because we believe that our bodies are not only worth redeeming, that after we die, we will have a resurrected body. So that brings us back to the first and biggest question of the morning. How exactly is that going to work? And it's to that question that we turn back to the Scripture reading that Susan read for us moments ago. This passage from 1 Corinthians 15 contains my favorite response to questions of life and life after death. It's my go-to passage when it comes to ministering to families who are grieving the loss of loved ones. It's my favorite passage when I wrestle with questions of my own mortality and what will happen when I die. You can imagine that as Paul is writing this passage to the Corinthian church, he gets to that place where he wants to describe to those early Christians exactly what he believes happens when we die. And he wants to explain to the Corinthian church that we will have bodies. Somehow, in some mysterious way, it's not just our soul, it's not just our spirit. We will have a resurrected body. And he wants to distinguish between the earthly body that will go into the ground, but some kind of raised and resurrected body. And it's here in this passage that he gives the clearest most powerful metaphor for the Christian church. It's found in this passage. He says, It's the same with the resurrection of the dead. 
A rotting body is put into the ground, but what is raised won't ever decay. It's degraded when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in glory. It's weak when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in power. It's a physical body when it's put into the ground, but it's raised as a spiritual body. If there's a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. These powerful words from Paul are all hinging on one of the richest metaphors he gives in all of his epistles. It's the metaphor of a seed. Just a tiny, innocent, isolated seed. Paul says that your human life is like a seed right now. And when you die, that seed, your life, your body goes into the ground. And what happens when you put a seed into the ground? It doesn't just stay there, does it? Something emerges through the ground, above the ground. A plant, fruit, is born once the seed goes into the ground. And he says that's exactly what happens when we die. That our lives, like seeds, go into the ground, but something emerges after we die. Now, on appearance alone, those appear to be two very different things. The seed and the plant, the earthly body and the spiritual body. But even though they are different in appearance, they are both essentially bodies and they are both essentially the same. And your resurrected body will still essentially be you. In other words, you can't take an apple seed and plant it into the ground and expect a harvest of oranges. You can't take a pumpkin seed and expect a tangerine tree to emerge from it. You plant a lemon seed, you will get lemons. You plant your life into the ground, you will have a spiritual body that is uniquely yours. It will not be an earthly body. It will be a resurrected or spiritual body, Paul says, but it will still be a body. It will still be essentially you. It will still be resurrected. It will still be identifiable by people that you know and love. It will be different, but it will be very much you. That is what Paul is saying. That our spiritual bodies will be raised from our earthly bodies. Because bodies are worth saving. Bodies are worth resurrecting. Bodies are good. Now I know that even that important metaphor alone does not answer all of our questions, does it? I mean, from that we get lots of other questions. What age will that spiritual body be like? Will the age of our spiritual body be the time that we die or will it be a younger version of ourselves? How will our bodies be uniquely ours? What will that spiritual body be like? How will we recognize our loved ones? What age will they be? In other words, will we see the young, handsome Elvis or the older, fatter Elvis? I mean, how is this all going to work? How is this going to work? And we can see, brothers and sisters, that very quickly the number of our questions mount. 
far beyond the Bible's capacity to speak in that kind of detail. It's why Paul says in this very same passage that all of this is a mystery. And why just a couple chapters prior, he describes this as the glass darkly, through which we look but cannot find certainty and clarity on this side of heaven. There is, quite simply, a lot of questions that we have to which we do not know the answers. It's in moments like this that I always love to fall back on one of my favorite quotes. It's from the author Anne Lamott, who said that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. I like that reminder. You might picture it this way, that that you have, figuratively speaking, a box, and in that box are all the questions that you have for which there are no clear answers. You might call it your, your I don't know box. And that box is so much filled with questions to which we don't know the answer. And on the other hand, figuratively speaking, you might consider another box that you have. It's a box that's labeled, I believe. It's the things that you choose to believe because you know them to be true. And what Anne Lamott is suggesting here is that even though your I don't know box may be full, it does not mean that your I believe box needs to be empty. Because there are certain things that we can believe despite the absence of evidence or proof that addresses our I don't know box. Because even though, even though we have all these questions, we can still believe certain things. And we can dare to imagine that if we were to have absolute evidence and proof and certainty about what heaven will be like. Let's say one day we were to have with absolute clarity what our bodies will be like when we die. Then there would be no reason to have faith, would there? And if there was no reason to have faith, then there would be no impulse for us to stretch and to grow and to mature. The absence of evidence does not mean that we don't have to believe because the opposite of faith is not doubt it is certainty the great writer Henry Nouwen writes a story about two twins in the womb this is a conversation that this sister and brother were having in the womb The sister said, Brother, I believe there is life after birth. Her brother protested vehemently, Oh, you're wrong, sister. There is no life after birth. This is all we have. This is all there is. This is a dark and cozy place. And all we have to do is cling to this cord. This cord gives us 
all that we need. The little girl insisted. She said, there must be something more than this place. I I just have to believe that there is something more than this place. Something else. A place with light, not darkness. A place where there is freedom to move. Not to feel so confined. Still, she could not convince her twin brother of her belief. After some silence, the sister went on pressed even further. She said, I I know you're really not going to believe this, but not only do I believe that there is a life after birth, I believe in the existence of mother. What? The brother said. You've got to be crazy. What are you talking about? I have never seen a mother. There is no evidence of the existence of mother. And you've never experienced that evidence either. Who put that idea in your head? As I told you, all we have is this place. All we can know is what we can sense and see and experience here. Why do you always want more? Come on, sister, this is not such a bad place after all. We have all that we need. Why can't you just be content? That shut down the conversation for a while. The sister was quite overwhelmed by her brother's response. And so for a long time, the two of them did not speak. But she couldn't let go of those thoughts. And after a few more months, they both started to feel squeezing on their bodies. Painful. Very difficult squeezing. And it was at that point that the sister then said to the brother, Don't you feel those squeezes? Aren't you starting to feel those squeezes each and every day? How painful they are? How difficult they are? Yes, the brother said. What's so special about those squeezes? Well, the sister said, I think it's possible that those squeezes, those, those painful moments, as difficult as they are, I think, I think those squeezes are actually preparing us for a better place. For a place that's much more beautiful than this. So that eventually we can see mother face to face. Don't you think that's possible? And if it is, Don't you think that's exciting? Honor now his story is powerful because it dares to imagine that even in the midst of your life right now, that as painful as those squeezes have been, it could be that it's preparing you for a better place. You've you've lived through those squeezes. You know what squeezes I'm talking about. It's those squeezes that come when you say your final goodbye to a loved one at the graveside. It's those squeezes that you feel even now as you are journeying alongside a loved one during their declining days. It's those ultimately difficult squeezes that you feel in the middle of the night, in the darkness, when you are wrestling with your own mortality. It's those contractions 
They're really painful. Is it possible? Is it possible that that is all part of our divine parent preparing us for the promise of a life after death? When we will be able to see that divine parent face to face. There's no evidence of it. You can't prove it. It doesn't mean that we can't believe it. That's why Paul ends the passage the way he does at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. It's with that conviction that he can stand before death and say, Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. He recognizes that ultimately the power of the resurrection is not something that we can either conjure or prove. It has been given to us through the power of God in Jesus. And that is all the evidence he needs. And dear friends, that's all we need to believe on this side of eternity. Let's pray together. Gracious God, the questions haunt us. They even perplex us. And when we try to answer them with conventional means, we find even more questions than answers. So for now, thank you for giving us what we need. The ability to stretch through our faith. A metaphor of a seed. And even the companionship of others. That remind us of this ultimate reality. That you have conquered the grave. That you raise us to new life. And that we need not fear. God, I pray for anyone in this place this morning who is really struggling with this. Either through their own grief as they mourn the loss of a loved one. As they are going through the final days with a loved one in decline. Or even as they wrestle with their own finite existence. These are tough questions. There are no easy answers. But we serve a powerful God who is always with us and has empowered new life through your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray and let all God's people say.